It was 1998, the year of the Karlstad family reunion at Camp Luther in British Columbia, Canada. Everyone had begun to arrive and we were so excited. Our cousins were coming, our aunts and uncles from across the states, everyone was traveling up to Canada so that we could have some fun and worship and learn together. But there were some slow pokes that weren't yet there. Grandma and Grandpa Karlstad, always so slow. We waited and waited and they just didn't come. And of course, this was the age before cell phones, so it was harder to get information back then. But then we got a phone call from the hospital that my grandma had fallen and hit her eye. We later found out from the doctors that her heart had stopped, and as she was walking, she hit her eye on the side of the curb. And we found out right as we were about to start this celebration that my grandma might lose her eye. Well, I was in junior high at the time, and this was pretty dramatic for me. I remember this being maybe the first time that I ever prayed fervently for something. I remember going away into kind of like a little prayer closet and crying about this. Maybe it was actually the bathroom. I was crying, and I was by myself and praying that God would allow my grandma to keep her eye. I walked away from that time together and I walked up to my mom and I told her that I didn't think that God would give me a yes for my prayer. I was pretty confident that God had heard me, but I was pretty confident also that God would say no because I thought that God wanted us to suffer. I remember my mom's look of shock, uh, this pastor's daughter telling her that, that uh, God wants us to suffer was not what she wanted to hear. And she just looked at me and then after a while said, wow, that's a pretty sad theology. But what was I supposed to tell my mom? That was exactly what I thought. I wasn't going to lie about it or pretend that everything was rose-colored and happy. I, I thought that God wouldn't save my grandma's eyes. I thought I'd just be honest about it. Since I was in junior high, I had started to see that struggle and pain and hardships were part and parcel of life. And it seemed to me that Christians actually sometimes got the rawer end of the deal. And so I thought that maybe God wanted us to suffer. Didn't quite know how to make sense of a loving God who allowed people who loved him to suffer. Based on our life experiences and personalities, we can conclude a whole panoply of things about God and about life. Some of these things may or may not be true or are simply incomplete. Perhaps we conclude that I did, that God is the cosmic sadist who desires to inflict pain on everyone. Or we can conclude that God doesn't seem close to us. He's distant and far removed. That's called deism. Or we believe that God's purpose is mostly to support and comfort us, that God's purpose is to be a therapist. Or that God's purpose is to ensure our happiness and that we can accumulate and have whatever we want. This is called prosperity gospel. This is a small snapshot of the options that we can believe about God, some of which aren't true and some of which are only part of the picture. And this is what we can gather when we just look to our experiences. But the reality is we're fools if we don't 
take our experiences seriously. Because our experiences is how we learn who and what we can trust. It's important to pay attention to our experiences and what they teach us about the world. So experience is important, but it's limited. Our memories aren't perfect, and our vision can be narrow. How often have you thought back on an experience and then you realize that you didn't quite have all of the information? But now that you have this or that detail, you think pretty differently about what happened. Or that now that you've grown and that time has passed, that now you look back on that experience with, with different eyes. We need more than simply our experience, something more reliable to anchor and guide us, to teach us about who we are, who God is, and what the point of it all is. We need scripture, and we need the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now, we recognize that we'll never see everything or know everything perfectly in this life, that we continue to learn, to grow, and to be shaped by the Holy Spirit. As the Apostle Paul writes in, in his letter, the first letter to the Corinthians, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So we do our best to approach life and one another with humility, recognizing that we are all in process, every last one of us. And so we desire to be gracious to one another and to ourselves as we continue on this journey because we've got a lot to learn and we need the master teacher. In Isaiah 51, God's people had been scattered and many of them lived in a foreign land under foreign rule in Babylon. By this point in the book of Isaiah, it had likely been, it had been generations since their exile and the destruction of Jerusalem it felt so long. Some of them never even lived in Jerusalem. It was a lifetime away. So it seemed only natural for the people to wonder whether or not God would make good on his promise to bring them home. It would make sense if they wondered whether or not God could be trusted. Their experience proved their situation unchanged. They were still in exile. If there was anyone who was ready and had reason to give up hope. It was them. But verse 1 of chapter 51 indicates that there's still a remnant of those who have hope, still a remnant of those who seek the Lord. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and Sarah, your, who gave you birth. When I called him, he was only one man, and I blessed him and made him many. The Lord calls his people to remember, to go back to their beginning. God called Abraham and made a promise to him that he would be the father of many nations. And then a whole bunch of years passed, and Abraham and Sarah were childless, much less had no generations after them, multiple generations and then, of course, in God's most comedic timing, in their geriatric years, God promises them again a child and makes good on his promise. If God was faithful to fulfill his promise to an old geriatric couple, surely God will be faithful to fulfill his promise to his people, to a whole people. 
God wants them to remember his faithfulness. He wants them to remember that Abraham was the rock from which they were cut, and Sarah was the quarry from which they were hewn. God's, God's people are the fulfillment of that promise from long ago. God is faithful to his promises. The Lord will comfort them and will look with compassion on her ruins. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of singing. They will know the Lord's goodness and faithfulness and the Lord's justice will be a light to the nations. Even the ends of the earth will wait in hope for God's justice. As God's exiled people heard this, they likely had a particular view of what this justice looked like. Perhaps it sounded something like, blessings for them and curses for everyone who opposed them. But Isaiah points to a different kind of vision, a vision of God's justice being a light to the nations, a light to the entire world, to the coastlands, to the islands, to the whole world. God's purpose was not just for the Jews, it was for all people. As the Lord told Abraham when he called him, his purpose was for all the peoples of the earth to be blessed through Abraham. Blessed to be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing is a calling that many of you at St. Tim's take seriously. We want to steward this property well, so we host a whole bunch of groups on our campus which have nothing to do with us. Well, we want to support them. We even have a church plant that meets on Sunday mornings over at Carter. We want to make sure that our neighbors are well-fed and treated with dignity. So we've expanded our fish food pantry and placed it out front so that our neighbors know that this is a place for them. The 146 quilts that are in front of you were sewn by our quilting group and will be given to our fish clients later on in love. The boxes for Operation Christmas Child represented here is just a small fraction of the 257 boxes that were packed this year from St. Timothy's alone. These boxes, as many of us know, will be sent to children around the world who will most importantly hear the message of Jesus for them. The frozen poultry in the barrels will go to ensure that guests of City Team and Fish will eat well this holiday season. And this is just brushing the surface. There is so much constantly that is happening at St. Timothy's to love and serve our neighbors. And we want to ensure that what we're doing, we're not only doing with good intentions, but that we're doing wisely. So a cohort of us are processing the book, When Helping Hurts, taking an honest assessment of our mission ministries so that we can indeed be helping and not hurting. I'm so thankful that this outward focus is the orientation the vision of so many at St. Timothy's. Because the point is not a prosperity gospel, an accumulation of so many things for ourselves or even for our church. The point is not to live life on our own or to just be happy or to simply be comforted by God or even to receive the wrath of God. The point is for the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven. It's not about me and it's not about you. It's about all of God's creation. It's about God's justice for all people. The failure of God's people to enact justice was the reason they were exiled. In Isaiah chapter 1, the Lord said that he was tired 
of their sacrifices, and their incense was detestable to him. He could not bear their worthless assemblies. And then in verse 15, God says, When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash your hands and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. But despite God's pleas to his people, they continued to take advantage of the poor and the marginalized. They refused to love what God loves, and then they were exiled. Later, many years later, God was finally ready to bring them back. But he wanted them to understand the vision that his justice would be a light to the nations. His salvation would last forever. His righteousness would never fail. And then about 500 years later, God became flesh and went from place to place, preaching and healing. The kingdom of God has come near, Jesus proclaimed. Repent and believe the good news. And then in Luke 4, we find Jesus opening the scroll of Isaiah and reading from chapter 61. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolls up the scroll, hands it to the attendant, sits down, and then he says, today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It doesn't take long for them to try to push him off a cliff. The point is the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. The point is God's justice for all people in response to his love for us on the cross. At times it's difficult to believe that this is the point because it seems that our life experience prove otherwise. The poor get taken advantage of and the church that we read in the news seems to care less. It seems more common to hear of churches trying to become big, trying to have a big platform, do something big or whatever, whatever it is that they, that they want. It seems that it's fewer and farther between that it's churches whose purpose is to love their neighbor and to be agents of God's justice. But when we read scripture and we hear Jesus' words, we receive a consistent message that the point is for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Justice and our care for the poor and the marginalized is therefore the fruit of our faith. As James writes, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. So we pray that God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven, that Christ will be king from shore to shore. We pray that we will be the hands and feet of Christ, that justice would roll like a river, as Amos wrote, that justice would roll like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. This is the promise of victory that Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, we thank you for your creation. You have created it good. And sin has come in and infected all of us. 
It's infected our hearts and our relationships. And those who need the most care are often the ones who are treated with the least amount of dignity. We pray that you would continue to use your church here at St. Timothy's to honor you and to serve your people. We pray that you would be glorified in everything that we say and do. We thank you for the boxes collected here, the poultry for fish and city team and the quilts for fish. God, we pray that you would be glorified in all of this. We thank you for your church and for the encouragement that each one is to us and for your word, which continues to guide us, especially when our experiences don't seem to to show the truth of who you are. We thank you for your goodness and for your faithfulness to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.